0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Anthony Kaldelis about his book, Roman Land, Ethnicity and Empire in Byzantium. Anthony, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be back uh, on your podcast again.
0: And it's a pleasure to have you again, especially with a book as interesting as this one. I was uh, wondering, for for, uh, listeners who aren't familiar with our previous podcast, I was wondering if you could uh, tell them something about yourself.
1: Sure. Well, uh, I am a professor of classics at the Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. I have been here now for nineteen, almost twenty years, um, and yet my degree is in history uh, from the University of Michigan. So I'm a PhD in um, in history, Byzantine history specifically. So I am among very, very few Byzantinists who have a position in a department of classics. So most of my colleagues study ancient literature and ancient religion and so on. Uh, most uh, Scholars of Byzantium are in history departments or art history departments. Uh, but that's what I do. So I teach courses in history, in classics, in uh, Greek of all periods. Uh, uh, well, I don't teach modern Greek. I, I speak
0: it. It's interesting because I, I, I feel as though it, that plays well into what you write about in the book. And it's a very interesting book. And, and I compare it with the, the previous book we talked about, which was Streams of Gold, Rivers of Blood, which was a history of a specific period in the, what we call the Byzantine Empire, and yet Romanland looks at the empire uh, from a very different perspective. What was it that led you to uh, uh, focus upon this subject of of, of ethnicity and, and the idea of empire uh, in the East?
1: Actually this uh, book, Romanland, it, it stems directly from the research that I did um, for um, Streams of Gold in the following sense. The period of Byzantine history that I narrated and analyzed in the previous book uh, was a period when Byzantium, and this is in in the 10th century, rapidly expands. It uh, conquers a um, a whole host of territories in in Syria, uh, in Armenia, in the Caucasus, but also in the Balkans, especially the Bulgarian Empire. And so it expands and becomes much more imperial. Um, And then in the later 11th century, it loses a lot of this, um, especially um, in the East. So all the Caucasian territories, the territories in the Caucasus and then Asia Minor. Um, So in looking at this process, I became fascinated at the question of empire. Um, You know, what does it mean for a state to go from being less imperial, right, in the relations between the rulers and the ruled to being more imperial and more diverse in terms of languages and ethnicities and so on. How did the Byzantines handle this? And at that point, I realized that in my field of Byzantine studies, there really isn't um, um, a sort of uh, sustained attention to those questions of empire and ethnicity, which you would think are kind of crucial, right, for discussing empire. Um, And as it happens, there is a flourishing bibliography on empire going on all around uh, Byzantium that is in antiquity. They talk about ancient empires, um, medieval empires, modern empires, and political scientists are involved. And so there's this flourishing bibliography and theoretical study of empire. um, And it can take all kinds of directions, right? It can be economic, territorial, religious, but a a lot of it is about ethnicity. Um, And... You know how sometimes religious differences can be expressed in ethnic terms and vice versa, right? So those two are kind of linked sometimes. And I thought, that's odd. I mean, why does my field not do this? Because we call Byzantium an empire all the time, right? Like, that's, that's the word that we use for it, the Byzantine Empire. And yet, there's no um, definitions of what we mean by empire in that context. Um, and if empires are multi-ethnic, and there's a sort of general understanding, consensus, that empires are multi-ethnic by definition. What were the ethnicities of the Byzantine Empire? Like, this is never discussed either. And then I realized that l- there's no bibliography on ethnicity in Byzantium. And so that's where I realized that these two issues, ethnicity and empire, had to be sort of reconstituted from the ground up. And the ground for me is always the primary sources. So that's what this book does here. The Roman land, it looks at the sources to understand how ethnicity was understood, who these groups were, and more importantly, what how is their relationship um, expressed in imperial terms? That is, if one group has domination over another, what does that mean in practice?
0: And the conclusions you reach are really fascinating. I, I found as I was concluding the book is, is that you could sort of summarize it to borrow from Voltaire and say that the Byzantine Empire was neither Byzantine nor an empire. I, I was wondering if you could perhaps yeah. a, elaborate a bit upon what you are arguing in the book and and, and, and how it plays to the title of Roman land.
1: Sure. Um, well, so let's take each ter- uh, term in turn. Uh, ethnicity um is um well actually let me start with empire um, because that's a it's a better framework for understanding the question. So empire is probably better to be understood not as an either or that is is a state an empire or is it not and and the two don't overlap right. Ethnicity is I'm sorry empire is probably better understood as a kind of relationship right. Uh, so most empires are the product of conquest so one group whether it's defined ethnically or ethno-religiously, or is a kind of politically constituted, you know, body, either a nation or something like that, conquers a whole bunch of others. And you look at the historical existence of this state, and you can see, well, these are the conquerors, this is how they ruled, these are the subjects, this is how they were ruled, right? But if you think about it, that kind of relationship can also exist in a kind of more or less degree, right? So you can have states that are more imperial; that is, they're characterized by those kinds of relationships more at some point in their history and less so in another point. And this is exactly what happens to Byzantium during its long history. And Byzantium, you know, like lasts twelve hundred years, right? So there's a there's an ebb and flow in terms of how imperial it is. Um, and so so that's one thing. Imperial is a relationship, not a you know the the essence of a state Uh, i'll give you another example ancient athens we call ancient athens a democracy right in the classical period it's a democracy we know how it was ruled it was ruled very democratically through direct participation of adult male citizens right Um, nevertheless ancient athens also had an empire it had an empire over other greek cities states And so there was this dual relationship going on, right? It was the same with ancient Rome, right? The Republic. The Republic is governed at home as a Republic, but it's the one that creates the Roman Empire, right? Uh, And so this is where our terms are kind of mismatched, right? If you think about it, we call it the Roman Republic, but it was more imperialistic than the Roman Empire, right? Once the Roman Empire, once we have emperors, like after Augustus, the empire becomes less imperialistic in terms of like conquering foreign peoples. And it actually, over time, tends to eliminate, reduce and eventually abolish the legal distinction between conquerors and conquered. So our, our conventional terms for republic and empire don't really help there. Um, but anyway, I just wanted to get across that empire is a relationship. So sometimes we have a state that can be more imperialistic or less imperialistic. And so the question then is: well, how do we decide that? Well, so empirically, it has to do with the relations between the, 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 the core, the metropole, right, the ruling group, and its subjects. And so this is where I turn to Byzantium, sort of looking at the evidence. So let's see who are these people? Well, there's a there's a reason why this has never been discussed in these terms. And the reason is that if you look at the sources, it becomes very uh, quickly clear who these people are. They're named in the sources. There's no ambiguity about it. The problem is, however, that the the ruling group, the core, are the Romans. This is what they're called, right? This is what Byzantium calls itself. It calls itself Roman land, the land of the Romans, and the Romans are by far the largest group in the the state. The ruling class are Romans. The you know uh, the dominant. Ethno-linguistic and religious identity of the population is understood as Roman, and this is a problem because there's been a long history of denying this in in a lot of Western scholarship and most scholarship for reasons that have to do with the you know the history of the West, like medieval and post-medieval, modern, and so on.
0: The idea of being Roman, you, you trace it all the way back to the eighth century CE. We're talking about an argument here that has been made for in various forms for 1,700 years.
1: Yes, that's right. Yeah. It, it starts in force around, well, in the late 8th century, of certainly with Charlemagne's coronation, and then you have the emergence of institutions like the papacy and the German emperors in the West, and they have a the projects to label themselves Roman, to, to appropriate the legacy of ancient Rome, to give themselves legitimacy and prestige. And they do that. And for a while, Byzantium can ignore them. I mean, they were, you know, Western Europe was a kind of backwater for many centuries. Um, but eventually the, the the tide turned, you have the Crusades, Byzantium is conquered, it disappears. And this Western view of who is Roman and who is not, this kind of idea that, oh, to be Roman, you have to speak latin or be catholic or live in the city of rome or something like that it sort of becomes dominant and ingrained in western perceptions and and so what this meant was is that they couldn't call the eastern romans they couldn't call them romans uh, this didn't it didn't fit the paradigm and so you have this history of denial that starts in the middle ages and instead of calling them romans they they start they call them greeks from like the language or whatever Uh, And that persisted until the 19th century, and the 19th century was uh, another turning point when the term Greek became problematic, uh, that is, to use for the Byzantine, for what we call the Byzantine Empire, Uh, for a number of reasons. We can get into them if you want, but they're they're very modern. and so that at that point in the 19th century, when, when referring to the empire of the Greeks was problematic for reasons that had to do with great power politics and so on, the term Byzantium and Byzantine were kind of brought out of the warehouse of storage and <laughs> pressed into service, right, to talk about this medieval state. And the idea was that, well, they certainly weren't Romans. We don't want to call them like ethnic or national Greeks anymore. We'll just call them Byzantines, which is kind of like a Abstract. It's kind of an empty term. It doesn't really mean anything. And the only thing that was left was orthodoxy, right? Christian orthodoxy, the Christian, the Orthodox Church. And so that, for the twentieth century, that became the dominant paradigm for discussing it. But within that context, it was impossible really to talk about ethnicity. That is, if you understand Byzantium as a kind of Orthodox empire and not one that's structured uh, around legal or ethnic distinctions, um, then you you lose sight of those. You, you don't see them. And so that's, in a nutshell, why my field didn't really have a developed, doesn't have a developed sense of either empire or ethnicity. And I think they're perfectly valid categories to discuss. And that's what this book tries to do.
0: I'd like to focus uh, for a, a few minutes upon that idea of the Roman identity, and it, it, because I, I thought your discussion on it was was absolutely uh, fascinating, the, the idea of how, in effect, there is this identity that existed that they acknowledged that 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 mattered to them that we have largely uh, written out of so much of our understanding in the West of. Who these people were, and 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 uh, in in their own definition of uh, of themselves.
1: Yes, well, it's it's really strange, though, isn't it? I mean, you have a highly literate civilization by medieval standards that produced an abundant literature and sources, and they're pretty clear, like consistently clear, about who they think they are, and they are Romans. Now, they are Greek speaking. Romans. They are Orthodox Christian Romans, but nevertheless, um, as far as I know, my mine is the only field, the only field of like historical research, who, who, one of whose fundamental axioms is to deny that identity. Like when you come across it in a source, you're supposed to say, oh, but this, they didn't really mean this, or they were deluding themselves. They weren't really that, or this was just a a uh, superficial label that they put on top of themselves to hide. So, you know, like these kinds, these are weird moves, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like I don't know any other fields where you do that, like where that's the operating principle of historical <laughs> inquiry, <to laughs> deny what your sources are telling you, right? And of course, I mean, there's a history of Western denialism there about this question, but there's also how um, we've talked about ethnicity um, in many fields until very recently, right? Like this idea that ethnicities are kind of primordial. Um and, I mean, not mod, the modern nations, right, have projected these kinds of ideas that their nations have always existed and even if they moved around geographically, right? Um and so there so there's this weird <laughs> there's this weird consequence in Byzantine studies where you can talk about ethnic minorities in Byzantium if they still exist today. Right. Like you can write articles about Jews in Byzantium and Armenians in Byzantium and Arabs in Byzantium, but but you can't write about the ethnic majority. Right. Mm -hmm. So so there's no there's no bibliography on ethnicity in general in Byzantium because that is other than the individual group in which you're interested. You can write about Turks in Byzantium and and Jews or whatever, but separately. That is, you can't do so within an overarching under uh, theory of what ethnicity was in Byzantium, because then you'd have to deal with the core group, the one that made up anything from 50 to 80% of the population, depending on its imperial scope right at that moment. So, yeah, yeah. Roman Romanus is a problem.
0: Yeah, I was thinking about how that approach also tends to double down on this perception of Byzantium as an empire, because you're focusing upon this notion of the distinctions rather than the commonalities.
1: Yes. So, if you have a state that is like eighty uh, percent ethnically homogeneous, linguistically, ethnically, religiously, the same institutions, same, um, same culture, same art in the churches, whatever, and they understand themselves that way. That is, they talk about themselves as being well. We are Romans because of these things. Eighty percent, and then maybe you have, let's say, hypothetically speaking, right? You have twenty percent minority groups, but that doesn't really look much like an empire, right? I mean, that it's weird. No other empire would be like that. Um, that is that you would define what it is as a, as a historical society based on the minority. Um, now, if you're getting to 50-50, maybe. Um, though there are modern nation states that are 50% ethnic majority, right? 50% minorities, right? So you can still use that model too. Anyway, this has to do with the categories that we use, like how we conceptualize um, historical societies, uh, but again, Romanness is the problem here. Um, that is, you just simply have to accept what people are telling you about who they are, and that's that is the, you know, the the dominant approach to ethnicity since World War II, right? I mean, we, since we're no longer using race for these kinds of things, um, you know, there's some sort of fixed. Uh, fixed essence, some sort of identity that doesn't change over time, Um, well, then we have to simply accept people or groups for who they say they are. And in this case, it's pretty straightforward. I mean, I don't have to perform acrobatics or some sort of, you know, sleigh of hand or something like that to to convince, to show you that they thought they were Romans. It's just written all over the place.
0: So when we're talking about Romans, uh, how do we identify them, or or or, or, or what what are the, what are the, the the distinctions and commonalities that exist in terms of this group?
1: Sure. So, wait, distinctions within the group or between it and other groups? Between it and other groups. Oh yeah, right. Uh, they are basically the constitutive elements of any definition of this ethnicity. Um, and, and and the sources talk about this all the time. In other words, they'll say about an, an individual or a particular group that, um, oh, yeah, they were Romans. You can see this if you look at their language and the way they dress and their customs, uh, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so I, in the book, I gather um, lots of sources that make these kinds of um, – uh, that point to the indicia, the, the the signs by which you can tell what group someone belongs to. And they're pretty much those Uh, They're not consistent because the sources aren't theorizing ethnicity, right? They're just kind of reflecting it. Um, And so, yeah, basically it is, uh, it's it's a combination of factors, um, language, religion, um, social customs, um, values, basically also the sense of belonging to the group um, of the Romans. It was very politically constituted, too. Um, In other words, the the state, and, and this is, this is a a feature of Roman history from the very beginning, right? I mean, the Romans are not uh, uh, from the, even from the very beginning, right? They're not like uh, um, the speakers of some language who are roaming around some territory and, you know, maybe some warlord will create a state from them, then it will disband and something like that. No, no, no. The Romans from the very beginning are a politically constituted group, um, in, a, in a res publica with laws um, and political authorities and so forth. And, and this is what Byzantium is. It's just a continuation of the ancient um, Roman state. You know, and I should say here for, for, for your listeners, just because they might be confused, like who, who exactly are these Romans in, in Byzantium and why do they call themselves that? Um, because, you know, the average person here is Roman and they think, I don't know, Julius Caesar or Scipio or Augustus. Basically a Latin speaker from the city of Rome who lived in antiquity and was a pagan and so forth. Okay. So, so presumably that listener will also know that so Rome created an empire around the Mediterranean and that that empire lasted for a very, very long time. Um, And it fell in the West in the fifth century. This is the famous fall of the Roman empire. Now the fall of the Roman empire was only half the empire, right? It was the Western half. Uh, the eastern half survived just fine. Um, and that is what we call Byzantium. And it survived for another thousand years. It had its own capital, which was Constantinople or New Rome. It was created to be a kind of branch office of Rome in the east. Um, and its subjects were all Roman citizens because by then the entire empire had been enfranchised, had been made Roman citizens, and they were participating in the government and so forth. Um, so Byzantium is just simply the continuation of the Eastern Roman Empire. Even before the West fell, the majority of its inhabitants, well, free inhabitants, not slaves, um, were identified as Romans. Um, by the middle Byzantine period, this had become an ethnic sense as well. That is not just political um, in the way in which might, one might be like an American citizen, right? But ethnicity is could be anything, Um in, in the middle Byzantine period, those two overlapped. So political Romanness and ethnic Romanness. Um, so if, I mean, if you find, a, a Greek speaking Christian Orthodox Roman counterintuitive, <laughs> I, would, I would just ask the listener to think about how that might come about over the course of many, many centuries, right? Uh, even Caesar was bilingual in Greek and Latin. Um, Many ancient Romans were. There was never any requirement that one speak Latin in order to be a Roman, not legally, not in any way, really. Um, so it was the ancient Romans who created this sense uh, of of extending Romanness, and they did it very successfully. Um, the most successful um, place was in the territories of the Byzantine Empire, um, Asia Minor, for example, modern Turkey, and so forth.
0: And that's very fascinating because you're talking about places that had a histories of identities, identities that uh, were there when the Romans arrived and that they were engaging with. So what you're describing, this is the, another aspect of the book that, uh, you know, I, I found very fascinating, was how you're, you're talking about something that is both, you know, 1500 plus years in the past. And yet at the same time, you're talking about something that is also very modern, which is this notion of identity and ethnicity. And, and it and it's it's very relevant. Essence: the sense of how do we define these things, and, and and the degree to which you know the definition that we use today, or the or the ways in which we define it today, are you know relevant in terms of understanding how they did so in the past, and vice versa.
1: Exactly, there are fundamental questions about exclusion and inclusion at at the heart of this, right? Uh, because after all, if you can make people Romans, uh, right? So. The Romans conquered the Greek East, um, the Greece, Asia Minor, Syria, Egypt, and so forth. If you can take populations from there and through through mostly positive incentives, make them identify with the Roman orders to the degree that they no longer call themselves Greeks, um, but Romans. I mean, that's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- this is how ethnicity is constructed, right? It, ev- it, it emerges in a place through long-term historical processes. This didn't happen suddenly, but nevertheless, it was the product of policies and approaches. Uh, for example, just granting citizenship on equal terms, uh, to the point where, you know, you admit pr- former provincial, former conquered provincial. So descendants Right. Descendants of people you conquered enter your Senate as senators. They they become your emperors. Right. Um, Like we have a Punic um, emperor in the late second century, Septimius Everest. This is a person who spoke Punic. That's Phoenician. Right. That's a Semitic language related to Hebrew. And and he became Roman emperor. Uh, Then you have you start getting emperors from the east, from the Balkans, from wherever. So, the Roman Imperial state is was this amazing experiment in extending the franchise and inclusion. Now, having said that, let me, <laughs> let me be absolutely clear that the Roman Empire was created through violence, an incredible amount of bloody violence and plunder and enslavement. like I'm not trying to hide that, right? The Roman Empire had slaves about. I don't know, 15%, perhaps, of the population were slaves. They they weren't enfranchised. Who knows what they thought of all this. Um, but uh, I'm talking about a process of gradual inclusion that started among elite circles. Um, that's why I mentioned senators and emperors, but it, it extended very far down, uh, say, for example, through the army, right? And the Roman imperial armies, like half a million people, plus their families. That's a lot of people who are sort of plugged into the whole system. And then the you know everyone is enfranchised. Um, and there were certain mechanisms by which provincials could have a say in how the empire was run. Certainly the armies had a say. So these are a lot of people who had a say. Um, and those mechanisms allowed them to identify with it. Um, So let me let me give you a striking just just to show our modern listeners how how weird this is. So, like, imagine if when the British Empire conquered India, um, instead of what happened, they they granted full British citizen rights to the entire population of India. And. Uh, allowed the, the the natives not just to have local offices, right, and rule over their own. That's imperial ethnic politics, right? But no, to come to London and join the House of Lords and eventually become kings and queens, right? I, it's like that. Um, and with Byzantium, it gets it gets even kind of weirder in the sense that well, so imagine then if the British Empire created a a duplicate London uh, somewhere in India. Uh, just so that, you know, the, that part of the state could be represented with its own, it had its own capital and local authorities. And, and, and that led to a dissemination of British law and, and customs and identity and so forth. It's something like that, right? So you can see how far removed it is from modern policies um, of empire.
0: Mm-hmm. You. I think developed this very well when in your two chapters in the book where you discuss uh, the dynamic of assimilation and absorption with these case studies. I was wondering if you could perhaps uh, elaborate upon those case studies and, and how they show this process uh, as you know underway. Sure. Um, so there there
1: were very many moments um, in the history of the Byzantine Empire, also in the Roman Empire, but let's let's stick with Byzantium, where foreign groups, were um, either well, there are a number of ways in which this can happen. Sometimes uh, foreign groups would show up in fairly large numbers at the border and seek entry, either because they had perhaps lost uh, a war um, out, outside the, the borders of the empire. So, for example, this happened in the ninth century, where there was um, there was some pretty serious warfare going on in the Abbasid Caliphate. Um, and there was a group of Iranians in roughly Azerbaijan uh, called the Kuramites, and they had lost a battle with the, the Caliphate. It was a, a, a war, it was a long, bloody war, and they realized they were going to be exterminated, and so they just migrated to Byzantium. Um, so these are non Greek speaking, non Christian Iranian soldiers. <laughs> and, and and for for reasons we don't need to get into, the emperors were actually quite willing to accommodate them and bring them in. Now, on condition that they convert to Christianity, which they did, and then they were they were basically absorbed into the Roman army. Later on, they were they were distributed; they were like dispersed, uh, because empires knew the Roman Empire knew that that is a faster way to assimilate groups. So they were dispersed to the various provinces of the empire, but also the local women were required to marry them. Basically. I I don't know exactly how this was enforced, but we do know cases where it was. Um, So they were married to local Roman women. um, And we know something about their history. This is in the ninth century. Eventually this group, this was maybe about between 20 and 30,000 of them. Um, and we hear about some of them and some of their descendants for about a century, then they stop being mentioned, presumably because they were absorbed and assimilated, right? Um, that's that's remarkable. Um, we This could be done with Muslims as well. Um, now, again, they had to convert. Here's the thing. There's this law, this one in the 10th century, and it says, if a Muslim captive of war, so think about this for a moment this is someone who has been captured by the Roman armies fighting uh, you know a war against byzantium uh, which could even be a religious war like a jihad or something like that so he's been captured he's been taken to Byzantine territory where he's usually like enslaved that is forced to work the land or whatever if he converts um the state will give him land to own like with a five year tax-free grace period, um, and some money, I think, just startup money, and a pair of oxen. And if a Christian family marries their daughter to him, they also get a tax break. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, try getting that through Washington, right? <laughs> uh, okay, so it's not the same because—so, um, obviously, I mean, we would consider— so even like liberals today would consider that to be sort of culturally, well, the, it's called cultural genocide, right? I mean, you're asking a group to give up its identity, to give up its religion in order to be assimilated. Um, so that wouldn't, fly, that wouldn't fly on either side, right? Um, but, of course, the Byzantine Empire had no, no scruples about that sort of thing. Uh, they were always happy to receive power. If people were willing to play along, they were willing to absorb them. Um, and and this is this is how it worked in practice. Um, there are a lot of groups with which this was done, so Slavs, um Armenians, and so on. And some of them, we can trace their history over the course of generations. Like you can see how they start out like Armenians from Armenia and how their descendants end up just mainstream Romans, right So Greek speaking, uh, Byzantine Orthodox, self-identifying Romans, um, over, over the course of a few generations, right? That's, that's how long it takes. Um, and so it's a remarkable set of policies Now, now that, so basically if you were a Roman, you could very well have, and be aware that you had a sort of ethnic background ancestry, even though, and you, and you might have some like affective, uh, memory of it or attachment to it, right? This happens with many um, sort of white ethnic groups in the United States today, right? So you're like, you're American and you're white, but you're, I don't know, there's a Polish, Italian, Greek, right, kind of background there. Um, I have found some cases of that um, in, in Byzantium. They're quite interesting. Um, and then there are groups who don't um, give up their identity or their religion. Um, and, uh, many Jewish groups. Um, you know, and others, Uh, depending on their size. Uh, So when the empire conquers large numbers of Bulgarians or Vlachs or whatever, those kinds of policies of assimilation don't work. But I I think it's all, you know, very, it's very interesting to consider from our modern standpoint.
0: What you've described up to this point has primarily focused upon this notion of Romanness and Roman identity and then in the final uh, couple of chapters of your book, you basically undertake, and I, I thought it was really fascinating, this this ethnic inventory of, of empire, and what you uh, what emerges from it is a a, a very different understanding of uh, the Roman Empire, a, a, you know, in, in this period than we have uh, previously just simply assumed with you know labels like empire.
1: Yeah. So the term ethnic inventory occurred to me at one point. And I, I don't know. I don't know if that's sort of insensitive or anything, but um, maybe maybe I actually got it from university administration. Uh,
0: <laughs>
1: so, <laughs> sorry. I mean, I'm I'm the I'm the chair of a department and there's this thing that we do annually, which is a teaching inventory. And it's how many courses each person taught. And maybe that kind of just stuck in my mind. But anyway, whatever. So um Yeah, so the question occurred to me was, okay, so we keep talking about Byzantium as a multi-ethnic empire. Um, so what are those ethnic groups? Why won't someone tell me what they are? Because nobody will. Like I looked and I looked and I couldn't find anyone saying, Well, here are the ethnic groups that make this a multi-ethnic empire. Uh so you go to the sources and I found them, and they're fairly easy to find. So I thought I would I would do that. I would I would make an ethnic inventory of the empire. Of Byzantium at two moments in its history. So, roughly the early 10th century and then the mid 11th century. And because a a period of imperial expansion had occurred in the meantime, right? So, I expected those two um, inventories to look quite different, and they did. Um, So, what I do in those chapters is go through the different groups that we can can identify as living within Byzantium at any one time, and not only to identify them, but also to try to understand how they were being ruled by the Romans as a different group, right? Because remember, that's, that's the key criterion of empire, right? Is this group being treated differently because of who it is? Are there specific policies, that regulate it, govern it? Are they excluded from certain things? Um, and the 11th century uh, standpoint is, is the more interesting one because it's it's a more diversely uh, multi-ethnic uh, state at that point. And I found a very wide range of approaches. Um, there were ranging, for example, from groups that were basically left alone to manage their own affairs. So long as they provided some sort of tribute uh, to or to the emperor or soldiers on demand, you know, that sort of thing. But otherwise, you, you look, you know, you're in your mountains, you do whatever you want. Don't bother us. But, you know, you're within our territory notionally. So pay us this tribute. Whatever. Um, I found groups. So by that point, there were also a number of Muslim communities in the empire um, and. They were also left to their own devices, so long as they sort of paid, you know, taxes or you know, tribute rather than taxes. Um, and I think that those groups would sort of have been very difficult for the empire to absorb, just because its whole its whole legal structure um, was sort of interwoven with religion. Um, and and then there are all kinds of um, other groups in between, um, some which were heavily governed, that is by, inst- especially by fiscal judicial institutions, but like, for example, the Bulgarians. So the Romans conquered the Bulgarians on um, 10, um, 18. How were the Bulgarians ruled after that? And what I found was, yeah, there was a lot of emphasis on taxation and drafting into the army, but it doesn't seem that the Bulgarian political class survived. Um, the ones that were previously sort of dependent on the the Bulgarian Tsar and his court. So that group seems to have been basically deprived of power or stripped of its resources. Um, So that was a very different kind of approach. Of course, the Byzantines would have been very afraid of that class. Um, The the Bulgarians actually rebelled against the empire on at least three major occasions. Um, So that's what those chapters do. They just kind of go through and... And, um, um, sort of talk about how the different groups were, were governed. And, and, and that's where you get a glimpse of empire. Mm -hmm. Uh, Oh, you know, actually there's some interesting, um, there's some good bibliography on Jews in Byzantium. Um, and they, Jews were in a sort of also kind of ambiguous position. They were treated as Roman citizens. There are laws that say, yeah, well, Jews are Roman citizens, except with regard to their religion, um, where they are subject to their own, you know, the laws say priestly class, you know, whatever. I don't, I don't think that the Christian lawgivers were particularly interested in how those matters were regulated. But here's the sort of interesting thing: is that what a Christian Roman regards as religion is not the same things, not right as what a a Jew might regard as religion. Um, so, for example, when it comes to things like women in property or marriage, right? Marriage in the Roman tradition is, is a civil matter, right? It's two people just making an agreement. Um, not quite like that in the Jewish tradition. Um, and so I found some scholarship that talked about how Jewish women in Byzantium, eventually they figured this out, that they would have more rights in the Roman courts than under the rabbis and they went to the Roman courts to secure more property rights um, than they would have otherwise, and the courts said, "Yeah, sure." And they granted your your citizen you 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 can use this law to your advantage, and this was embarrassing to the rabbis. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so you you have like. In in you know m- medieval Jewish scholars are discussing you know matters regarding women and so on and they have to say oh except for the ones in the Ro- in Rome uh, the Roman ones who have these special rights I, th- I thought it was very interesting. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before you go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
1: Sure, um, I'm writing a new history of Byzantium, uh, a, a big one from the beginning. Well, I hope to the end. Uh, so. Yeah. And yeah, I've, I've made my way from, so starting with Constantine, the foundation of Constantinople, um, and I've reached the seventh century is what I'm working on right now. Um, I think we need a new history Byzantium, um, like a, a detailed one, uh, that's involved, not, uh, yet another brief history or short history or concise history. We have lots of those, um, something that's written from sources, um, and, um, yeah, I, so it's probably going to be in two volumes. Uh, there are 1200 years to cover. So I think that's justified. Um, now, you know, you know. so recently, so I'm, yeah, I'm working on the early period, 7th century. I'm almost reaching the, um, the Arab conquests, but I'm st- I'm also thinking about the other end of this story. So traditionally, Byzantium falls in 1453, right, when the Ottomans take Constantinople. Actually, we're speaking on the anniversary of that event, um, May 29th. Um, And that's traditionally when Byzantine history ends. Now, you can extend it a few years more because there were some outposts of the empire um, uh, in in the Peloponnese and Greece. Or there there was another offshoot of the Roman Empire at Trebizond. Um, in, uh, so on the black sea. Okay. But those last, maybe another decade, not, not more than that. But I'm thinking now, you know, so if the Romans of Byzantium are an ethnic group and there's every indication that they were that story, it continues under the Ottoman empire. Um, and I've been looking a lot into Ottoman sources and they confirm this. Um, so when Ottoman sources are talking about the ethnicities of their empire, the Romans are one of them. The Rum, um, and so even within the Orthodox communities, they'll talk about well, they're Serbs and Bulgarians and Rum and Vlachs and so forth. Um, so I, that story does continue past the fall of the state. Um, it's a very deeply entrenched ethnic uh, identity that lasts until the twentieth century, you know, and because uh, you know the Ottoman Empire it, it falls in the, in the early 20th century. Um, I don't think I'm going to write that history. I don't think I'll go that far. Um, but uh, yeah, right now I'm working on a new
0: history. Well, it sounds like a fascinating project and, and one that's going to be uh, very involved too. <laughs>
1: uh, yes, there are lots of sources, uh, but I have been preparing for this for a very long time. To- I didn't know I was preparing for this, um, but it turns out I was. Um, I Kind of know where everything is. I know how to find things um, quickly enough. Um, I had a trial run at doing this with uh, streams of gold. So that was 10th, 11th centuries. And I mean, I thought, you know, it's one of those things where you do it and you think, huh, okay, it looks, it seems like I can do this. Um, So I'll do more. Um, Anyway, and it's been a lot of fun. I'm trying to write it in a particular way. I want it to be uh, both informative and fun um so i'm taking extra care with the prose um actually i spent a year thinking about w- w- when when i when i had decided to write this i uh i was thinking yeah okay so i was thinking about you know how do you organize a narrative what sorts of things i want to focus on what's the story that i want to tell and all that but also probably more than any other thing i i read about how to how to write narrative prose and different kinds of prose uh, because I feel that scholarly prose is sometimes not very accessible or fun to read. <laughs> and uh, I wanted to make sure that I avoided those problems. So we'll see. You you can read it when it comes out and and tell me whether that succeeded.
0: Well, I definitely look forward to doing that. <laughs> uh, Anthony, take, thank you for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you, Mark. It was my pleasure.